Thank you, Scott. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be home. Um, this, the, the campus, uh, not just the town, but the campus is very much home uh, to me. I lived on campus for uh, 17 years, um, so it's good to be home, and it's good to be with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who have a, a passion for God and for what He's doing in this world, and uh, have both a desire and a sense of calling to be a part of that, and uh, I always look forward to the chances that I get uh, to spend here with you. Uh, you know, this is going to be weird and awkward. Uh, you know, when when uh, I get asked to speak in chapel, I'm not generally assigned a topic, and when I am, it's not generally homosexuality. Um, that's not like my go-to sermon or anything, you know. <laughs> My dad's a, a pastor and he always, you know, kind of taught me, look, you got to have like a go-to, right? So that when you're like in some random church and they go, hey, you're a pastor, go preach, you know, you got something to pull out of the hat. This is not that sermon um, for me. I am not an expert on this subject. I'm not an authority on the subject of homosexuality. But the context in which I minister, uh, which is a very urban, very post-Christian uh uber liberal kind of a context uh, has forced me to think long and hard about what scripture says and then how we as the body of Christ represent that with both grace and truth to the people in the culture that we're in. This is a very uh, complex and nuanced and sensitive issue and discussion and uh, I'm going to do my very best to respect that in our time together today. And while I think there'll be some people who disagree with what I say, my hope is that uh, if you're offended, you're offended by content, not by the way I say it or the attitude I have in it. I want to try to just uh, be very humble, very loving, very open and very honest as we address this. And uh, if there are those of you here who are still kind of navigating where you're at on this whole issue, trying to figure out what do I think about this subject, what are my beliefs around this issue, uh, I would like to say to you from the beginning that the loudest voices on both sides of this discussion are wrong. Uh, and so if you agree with the loudest voices, I'm pretty much sure you're missing the mark. Because on one side you have people uh, who you know, homosexuals are an abomination and should burn in the pit of hell for all eternity. And that's not biblically accurate. Uh, and on the other side, you have people who are saying, like, it's a virtue. You know what I mean? Like, there's love and patience and being gay. These are all the, you know, the, the virtues that we should espouse. And, and that's not accurate either. Uh, on the one end, you have heretics. And on the other hand, you have bigots. And we don't want to be either of those. And I also want to say that if you struggle with anything we discuss here today, whether that's homosexuality itself in your own life or judgmentalism or anything in between, talk to somebody. Connect with one of your professors or one of the other people on campus here who are here to help you. Come find me after. Uh, neither of those issues do well in the dark. And uh, if you're going to be able to address your own, again, whether it's struggles in this area uh, of sexuality or whether it struggles in a, a pharisaical, proud, judgmental, arrogant attitude, confession will go a long way 
in getting you down the road to healing in both of those areas. And so I would encourage you, man, don't just kind of sit there with it. Talk to somebody. This is going to be, I guess, a sermon, but only in the most technical sense. What I really want to do is just answer a whole bunch of questions that I think we need to have answers to if we're going to uh, address this issue and have a, a strong biblical voice on this issue to our culture. And so the first question that we have to start with is, is homosexuality a sin? Is it a sin? Is there evidence in the Old Testament against it? And can that evidence be maintained? I mean, there's the classic Leviticus passages like Leviticus 8.22, do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. Leviticus 20.13, if a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. Uh, They must both be put to death for they are guilty of a capital offense. Um, the Old Testament is clear. Now the question is, can that, can that be maintained? I mean, there's lots of stuff in the Old Testament that we don't pay any attention to. Uh, I would argue yes. Uh, it's in a, the, these things come in lists of other sexual sins that we would, uh, we also wouldn't question. You know, we question this one, but not the one before it and the one, not the one after it kind of a thing. And it's part of a, a moral law code. Uh, it's not, you know, here's the way you have to wash before you go to the temple kind of stuff. This is, here's how you ought to live your life kind of stuff. But it's almost a moot point because we can move on to the the more pressing question, which is there New Testament evidence uh, uh, towards the idea of homosexuality as a sin? And uh, yeah, Romans 1, 24 to 27. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the, thing God's, the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. You can jump up to Corinthians 6, uh, starting at verse 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality, homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1. Starting at verse 8, we know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father and mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. So there's no question that the evidence is there biblically. Now again, the question is, can it be maintained? Uh, can, can we actually look at this and go, this is the message that God has for us today? Or is there a way to kind of explain it away? Is there a way to kind of go, well, no, that's not really what this is about. Uh, there are certainly lots of people who've tried that. Uh, there are certainly, if, if you begin to research this, you will find all kinds of explanations going, you know, if you, if you take this word and use it in its most uh, kind of helpful towards my preconception interpretation and then you kind of twist it sideways and squint you can come up with a scenario where this actually is talking about uh, uh, child prostitution you can come up with a way that this is actually talking about uh, the idea of this being a forcible thing not a consensual uh, thing and I would I would challenge you to dig into those key passages while you're here 
do the, the direct exegesis on them while you're here. Look at the different possible interpretations while you're here at Kingswood so that when you go out and you're confronted with those uh, explanations, you'll have, you'll have an answer and you'll know uh, kind of what, what you think on it, where your stance is on it. You'll be able to back up why you believe that Scripture actually says what it says. But again, if you hold it sideways and, and squint just right, and ignore 2,000 years of <laughs> consensus throughout the church, you can try to explain away some of those passages. But I think the evidence in Scripture is clear. So then one of the other questions that comes up is, well, what about uh, the, the uh, supposed gay relationships that we see in Scripture? Those are, there are those who will argue that David and Jonathan uh, had a homosexual relationship. There are those that will argue that Jesus and John had a homosexual relationship. There are those that will argue that Naomi and Ruth had a homosexual relationship. Uh, those are just such a massive stretch, though. There's nothing in Scripture that would indicate any sort of sexual relationship between any of those people. I would argue that if you can't imagine two adults of the same gender having a deep, loving, and even affectionate relationship without there being a sexual component, that that's a symptom of your sexual brokenness. If you can't wrap your head around the idea of two guys hugging each other just because they love each other, not because there's any thing happening there, uh, that's not a reflection of scripture. That's a reflection on you. If the idea of, of two women, in the case of Ruth and Naomi, being radically committed to each other and doing life together and, and being there for each other and serving each other, if you can't see that outside of the realm of a sexual relationship, uh, and, I, and I say this with love, but you need to talk to someone about some of the sexual brokenness that's going on in your life because that's you. That's not there. You're putting that there. You're, you're in this place. I'm sure if that's the case, something has happened to you or you've just been way too influenced by culture that's put you in a position where you believe that love and affection uh, and trust and deep relationship must have a sexual component. And that's just not true. It's just not accurate. It's not biblical. Uh, it, it, experience doesn't bear that out. If you can't wrap your head around, Jesus and John were incredibly close, but there was no sexual dynamic to that. Uh, again, that's a symptom of a brokenness in you. And when you hear that interpretation in culture, um, you know, I, I, this, I just can't help but think when people present those arguments that I go, my word, what has gone on in, in your life and in your background that you can't imagine someone loving you that way if there wasn't a sexual payoff as a part of that? That's a sign of brokenness. But of course, shouldn't people be allowed to love whoever they want? Right? People should be allowed to love whoever they want. I agree. People should be allowed to love whoever they want. Jesus agrees that you should be allowed to love whoever you want. In fact, Jesus commands that you love people even if you don't want to love them. You've got to love them all, whether you want to or not. You should marry someone and have sex with someone that you love, in that order. Uh, but you should love tons and tons and tons of other people you never will have sex with. Love and sex come together in marriage, but they are not one in the same thing. So to say, how can you deny someone the right to be loved? No one's saying they shouldn't be loved. When you say, how can you say they can't love that person? Love away. Be super close. Even be affectionate with each other. You know, I've got close guy friends that, you know, when we see each other, we hug. When we sit together, we'll sit close to each other. I'm not like on each other's lap, but I mean, <laughs> you know, 
I got like pet names for some of my friends. I call the manager at the movie theater where we meet Cupcake. Like I just, I love the guy. Uh, it makes him a little uncomfortable, which is probably what I like about it. But this is not a question of who can be loved and who can't be loved or who we should love and who we shouldn't love. I believe everyone needs love and I believe we're called to love everyone. This is a separate issue, the issue of sexual relationship. Love needs to be a part of sexual relationship, but sexual relationship does not have to be a part of love for it to be real and to be true. Again, if you can't separate loving someone from sleeping with them, it's a symptom of your brokenness and the shallowness of true Christian community that you've experienced in the past. So I think the honest answer is taking scripture as a whole, yeah, it's pretty clear that homosexuality is a sin. So then the question becomes, well then what is that sin? We need to define that. I'm not talking about the biology of it. But this is where we really need to break down what is the difference between temptation and transgression. And if there's any issue that I think the church has completely uh, missed the boat on in many situations, it's this. The difference between temptation and transgression. When scripture teaches that homosexuality is a sin, it is speaking of an activity, an action, an act. And when you look at the sexual ethic that Jesus presents, we understand lust is an act. Lust is something you do, not something that happens to you. This is the kind of homosexuality addressed in scripture. When scripture talks about homosexuality, it's talking about actions, not about people's orientations. In fact, the idea of homosexuality as something you are versus just something you do is very modern. That's like a, a, a several decades, but still only decades old concept. In the first century, no one was like, gay, straight, gay, straight, gay, straight. That's, that's not how it worked. You just were. And some people uh, did <laughs> stuff with dudes and some with ladies and some. But there wasn't, it wasn't seen as something you were. It was something that you did. So when scripture speaks of homosexuality as a sin, it's saying to have homosexual relations with someone is sin. The orientation is not a sin. The orientation is a temptation. The orientation, I believe, is a, uh, a uh, an expression of brokenness and fallenness. But it is not innately sinful to suffer temptation. If that was the case, then Jesus was sinful because he was tempted in every way, just like we are. But he didn't sin. Jesus spent 40 days in the desert being tempted, but he did not sin. So that temptation is no more of a sin than any other temptation. The impulse is not a sin. Acting on it is. Let's compare this uh, for a minute to uh, a struggle with alcohol. Being an alcoholic is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. But being an alcoholic is a, is a form of brokenness. It's weakness. I think Wesley would call it infirmity. It's something that's messed up with you. It's something that's ultimately a result of the fallenness of this world. But it's not a sin to be tempted. If that's the case, we're all sinning all the time because I think we all face temptation. Uh, another comparison I would make, and in some ways this one might be even closer to home, um, and this is something I, I encounter a lot in my context, uh, is girls with daddy issues. That there's this deep brokenness around a male figure in their life. 
that causes them to be drawn to any male who will show them attention. That's not sin, that's brokenness. Now, if that becomes, I will have sex with them in order to get that attention, that's where that becomes a sin issue. Uh, But it's a brokenness issue, that compulsion, that desire, that sense of need, how it's expressed, how it's handled, how it's played out, that's where we have the chance to cross the line into sin. But let me tell you, if you try to explain this situation that way to people, there will be incredible backlash. You can't explain why it's broken through comparison to brokenness because it's not brokenness. There's a circular logic, right? Help me to explain why you think uh, being homosexual, even having that orientation, is, a, is, a, is a, an issue of brokenness as opposed to just difference. You go, well, let's look at some other kinds of brokenness and help me explain that. But no, 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 but it's, you can't talk about brokenness to explain brokenness because it's not brokenness because I said it wasn't brokenness. So you can't compare it to brokenness because that's not a good comparison because it's not brokenness. Well, I'm trying to explain to you through similarity and comparison how it, you can see it that way. No, 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 that's unacceptable. Right? It's kind of like if I had a, uh, I've got a bottle of water. Mike, can you throw it to me? I think it's just right behind you or close to you. There you go. It's like if I said, uh, I want to explain to you why what's in this bottle is water by comparing it to other things we know are water. And you go, that's not water in that bottle. And I go, well, let me do the comparison. You go, comparison doesn't work because that's not water. You can't compare water to water to prove it's water because the water's not water. Uh, (laughs) So just be ready for that. I think it's a helpful way for us to understand it. Um, But it's not, frankly, if you're having this conversation with someone who struggles to uh, embrace the biblical view on this, it's not a good place to start. um, Because there's this sense of, You cannot start from a place of this being some type of brokenness, some sort of sin. So, uh, what is the sin of homosexuality? It is homosexual activity. Then what is what we would call orientation? Again, a fairly new idea. I believe it's it's a specific, uh, specific kind of collection of temptation. It's a specific predisposition uh, towards that temptation, a specific weakness that makes you susceptible. I don't mean weakness like you're weak, but I mean we're all weak in different areas. Uh, it's a specific weakness, a specific brokenness that predisposes you uh, to, to being tempted and to the temptation that comes in that area. So then, if that's what homosexuality is, uh, as a sin, as opposed to as a temptation, as a, you know, as a, an actual action to be repented of versus a brokenness to seek healing for, uh, is it a special sin? Is homosexuality a, a uniquely special sin? Well, I would argue it's not a special sin in terms of severity. It's not like extra, super, double bad. Uh, now, some people say, well, pff, in the Old Testament, people who committed that sin were put to death. That's a long old list of what you got killed for in the Old Testament. All right? If you're going to say the Old Testament penalty was death, that's cool. Then a lot of things are a special sin. So special, I don't think very much is special anymore, right? Like you could wash your hands wrong, and that was about it. And then it was off with his head, you know, or, or fire stones at him, right? I think when we look at the Old Testament, uh, just as a quick aside, and we see uh, those kind of punishments, we need to realize that we read the Bible backwards. We start in the New Testament and work our way back to the Old Testament. And so if you do that, what you wind up with is you go, sin is not really that big a deal because Christ has dealt with it. But man, in the Old Testament, God was nuts. But instead, we have to start with the Old Testament and go, my goodness, sin is incredibly severe. Sin is an incredibly big deal to God. Sin is an absolutely horrible thing. And then when we get to the New Testament, our mind is blown by his grace 
to go, yet he forgives, yet he has grace. Other than Romans, most of the New Testament references to homosexuality are just in big lists, right? We read a couple of them today, right? You know, thieves, idolaters, drunkards, murderers, homosexuals, people who kick puppies. Like, it's just kind of this, <laughs> this long list. And, and I would argue that uh, idolatry is a much bigger concern in the New Testament uh, in terms of the airtime it gets. Greed gets a whole lot more airtime than this subject. That's not to say it's not a sin, but it's to say, I think if God was trying to uh, single it out as some special, unique, you know, the sin to end all sins, the, the, the real big bad one, we'd see a whole lot more airtime given to it in the New Testament. It would be dealt with a lot more on its own as opposed to just given as an example of kind of, we all know these things are sinful. So it's not worse than pride or lust or greed, or drunkenness, or dishonesty, or idolatry. And our reaction to it as, as such says a lot more about our pride than it does about the nature of that sin. Because we really like the idea that other people's sins are worse than ours. In fact, uh, I've, I've noticed that uh, the, more, uh, the more I struggle with a sin, the more prone I am to a given temptation the less of a big deal I tend to think that sin is. And the less I struggle with something and the less drawn I am to it, the more I think, man, people who do that are horrible. You know? People who, who lie. I mean, my dad and I had some pretty early conversations, three-way conversations, me, him, and a strip of leather about lying when I was a kid. And I just settled that issue. I wasn't going to be that guy. And that's just never been a big, a big issue for me. Like, I just kind of say what I know to be true and the consequences come, whatever. You know, like, people who lie are horrible. People who are pride, I mean, we're all, we're, you know, we all, we all tend to think more highly than ourselves than we ought to sometimes. You know, it's just natural. We're just human. Like, that's just kind of how we're wired, right? That's just what we do, right? I mean, pride, I mean, you be on, be on guard for pride, but I mean, pride is just one of those things, you know? Right? <laughs> You know, theft. I can't believe people steal stuff. I mean, what makes you think you can just... I mean, you've got to be some sort of horrible, terrible, low-down, dirty, no-good person to steal something. But, I mean, lust. I mean, that's... I mean, you see someone, you, they're attractive, you can't but notice. I mean, that's just, that's just human nature, right? I mean, right? Huh? Right? People who... Uh, people who, uh, you know, have... Uh, horrible theology. Not that that's even a sin, but it's just terrible. It should be. It ought to be on the list. Right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. I can't believe there's people like that. I mean, people who are arrogant about their theology and use it to separate other people off from them and, and make themselves seem better than them, I mean, I think that's just a natural effect of being right. Right? And so... A lot of times, the gut-level response that people have to the issue of homosexuality is not based on theology. It's based on their own psychology. It's not based on how bad it actually is. It's based on how hard a time they have understanding anyone ever being drawn to that or struggling with that or dealing with that. So again, if you go, oh, what a horror. You'd have to be a terrible, wicked, sinful, horrible person. No. 
I got friends who are gay who are just as good a people, not as saved a people necessarily, some of them, and some of them are just as saved as anybody else. But they're not like uniquely bad. I trust them a lot further than some of the people who are like leaders in my church, <laughs> frankly. Uh, it is a sin. It is brokenness. The action is a sin. The temptation is brokenness. The sin needs to be repented of. The temptation and the brokenness needs, we need to seek healing for that. But it's not a special sin in terms of severity. However, it is an incredibly special sin in terms of complexity. Knowing how to deal with this issue is so much more nuanced, so much more complicated, so much more interwoven than a lot of other things. Like if you're a lot, if you're a, if you're a thief, just stop stealing. Boom, problem solved. Knock it off. Right? Like how many, I mean, I guess maybe if you have like a, an actual psychological like kleptomania thing going on, but I mean, how many people, you know, you know what guys, like I've just been struggling for years with stealing cars. And like the other day I was coming home from church, I was worshiping Jesus, but I saw this super nice car and I just, so you know, one thing led to the another and I jimmied the lock open. I'm there connecting up the wires under the dash and I'm, what am I doing, Lord? Here I am again in this same place, you know, and, and next thing you know, five hours later, I was, the tank was empty and I had to just pull it over to the side of the road and hitchhike home and, right? I mean, that's a pretty simple sin to, to, in terms of just to, just don't, just stop, right? That's it. Homosexuality is, in, is uh, the issues are broad, they're interconnected, they're nuanced, they're complicated. Uh, first and foremost, there's the incredibly con- conflicting voices of morality in our culture on this subject. A lot of sins, even that are uh, accepted in our culture, are still seen as sins. Like adultery and divorce, those, that happens all the time. And a lot of people don't really get that worked up about it, but no one's like, that's awesome. We really need to support the adulterers out there. We need more failed marriages. That's what would move this country forward. No one's saying that about those issues. But when it comes to the, the idea of homosexuality, uh, again, it, it is treated as a borderline virtue uh, a lot in our culture, as though this is the greatest, most wonderful, most beautiful, most fantastic thing that could ever be. These two people love each other, and they found expression for that. And, and, you know, that's we should be more like them. We should look up to them. We should cheer for them. Versus on the other side, again, you've got, I mean, the far side is like Freddie Phelps and his whole crew of nut jobs. You know, God hates fags, burn them all, you know. And so there's this incredible conflict in our culture over the morality of this issue. That makes it really complicated. If I came up to you and I said, Scripture teaches you should not drink orange juice, and you happen to love orange juice, you're going to go, what in the world? I've never heard that before. That makes no sense. If I come up to you and say, Scripture says you shouldn't steal, you're going to go, yeah, I think you're right. But this is an issue where it's, this, is, no, this is a wonderful, good, beautiful, and celebrated thing in most of our culture. And then we as the church are countercultural in that going, no, 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 no. This is, again, as an activity, a sin, as a, as a temptation of brokenness. And you need to see God on that. It's incredibly complex. There's so much identity issues, uh, so many identity issues wrapped up in this. Like I talked about this idea of, of homosexuality as something you are as opposed to something you do uh, is relatively new, but it is well entrenched. 
It is well entrenched. If, if you say to someone, uh, I believe homosexuality is a sin, they'll say, what, you don't accept those people? And you'll go, no, I accept them. I love them. I love all kinds of people. I just... They're going, no, but that's who they are, right? You can't, you can't be against that as a thing they do. It's a thing they are. It, it's treated like uh, chauvinism and racism, things that reject people completely just based on some, uh, you know, variable factor they have no control over, sort of an idea, right? Like, you know, I just hate people because they speak this language or because they're this gender or because they... It's seen in that kind of category, and for people, especially who've, who've embraced that lifestyle for a season, be it short or long, that is core to their understanding of who they are. And so you're not just asking them to, to uh, challenge them to break a bad habit or to turn away from a one particular unhealthy behavior. You're saying you have to lay down something that is core to your current identity and take up a completely new identity. Now, frankly, we all have to do that. But a lot of us can talk ourselves into that not being as big of a deal. We all have to lay down the identity that we've crafted for ourselves and pick up the identity that we have in Christ. But for people who struggle in this area, their feeling of how much deeper that goes is incredibly, incredibly strong. That makes it complicated. You can't just say, just don't do it. You know, just stop. Knock it off. It's far more complicated than that. It's a who I am issue for them, not a what I do issue. Uh, A lot of times if people are going to leave that lifestyle, if it's something they've embraced and lived in that lifestyle, there's going to be a massive loss of community for them. Uh, The homosexual community is really, really good at supporting each other. They're really, really good at encouraging each other. They're really, really good at creating places where they can connect in community. I'm not sure that the quality of the community is good or bad, but it's there. There's literal signs posted, right? Here's the rainbow flag. You can come here and connect with other people. And if you're going to encourage someone as they follow Christ to step out of that lifestyle, you have to be ready to give them the community that they're about to lay down. It is uh, ignorant and selfish and it's ministry malpractice to say leave uh, what we might see as unhealthy community in exchange for no community at all. And if you're leading churches and you're leading youth groups and you're leading missions organizations uh, that are going to encounter this issue, you need to be prepared to welcome these people probably with wider arms than some others. Because the level of community that they're going to lose in this is huge. If you're into curling, and then you start going to church where not very many other people curl, your curling buddies will be okay with it. But if you leave, uh, if, you, if you embrace life as a part of a community that, that teaches, again, that homosexuality is an action, is a sin, as an orientation, is a, a temptation, an expression of brokenness. One needs to be repented of, the other you need to seek healing for. Who even teaches that, even if you don't believe it? There are going to be people who have an issue with that. There are going to be people who have a problem with that. And so when we ask people to embrace Christ, who struggle in this area, we have to be ready to provide a community framework for them. Uh, the next thing I want to say is, oh, it's so sensitive. Um, and I want to be really clear on, on what I am and am not saying here. But in my experience with people who struggle in this area, 
there is with incredible frequency some type of trauma issue. Uh, there is a brokenness we are all born with, but then there is a brokenness that is a result of the sins committed against us and the sins we have committed. And in my experience, not universally, I don't think, but incredibly frequently, there are significant trauma issues associated with this particular area. I'm not trying to say that's causation. I'm not trying to say that uh, this happened and then they became gay. But, but the, the connection, the correlation is uncanny. Uh, again, not universal, but very frequent. And so again, let's go back to the, the example of the thief. Um, there may or may not be, more likely not be, some deep wounds of the soul <laughs> that the thief has to work through to quit stealing those cars. There might be. More likely, they just need to smarten up, find some other way to get their kicks, you know, like, I don't know, take up rock climbing or something if you're an adrenaline junkie, you know. But for folks who struggle with the issue of homosexuality, uh, more often than not, you're going to find that that's the tip of an iceberg of hurt and brokenness and pain and trauma. And again, if you're going to call people out of that and into wholeness, you better be ready to walk the journey with them. You better be ready for what else comes up. What else comes out? And you better be ready to do everything you can to work with the Holy Spirit to bring healing to them. It's simple-minded and foolish to say, just stop being gay. Which leads to another question. So then, is homosexuality a choice? Well, again, the orientation, no. I don't think it is. I don't think anyone wakes up and goes, it'd be pretty sweet to be gay. I think I'm going to give that a shot. Uh, As... Much as the acceptance of that lifestyle has moved forward in our culture, uh, it is still an incredibly different, uh, difficult road to walk. There is still a whole lot of people who are loudly and ignorantly hateful towards people uh, who, are, who identify as homosexual. And so if they're going to embrace that, that's not something that anyone does easily. If they're going to come out of the closet, that's not something anyone just kind of does on a whim. I don't think it's something people pick or choose. The orientation the predisposition, uh, that chronic temptation. Being straight is still a lot easier in our culture. But the activity is. You don't just end up having sex. I mean, there are situations where people are abused and it happens against their will, but that's not what I'm talking about. You don't just kind of, oh man, I just totally accidentally slept with someone. Huh. It doesn't happen. The activity is a choice. It's an act of the will. It's something that you do on purpose. And it's something that scripture teaches is sinful. Which gets to the root of a broader issue in our culture that needs to be addressed. This idea that sex is a right or a need. That in order for healthy human flourishing, there must be regular sexual activity. And that whatever your choice is in that area should be allowed, provided for, encouraged, blessed. Sex is not a right. It's a blessing and a responsibility God gives to a married man and woman. Sex is optional. Like, you have to breathe. You have to eat. You have to drink water. You don't have to have sex. Like, you, it doesn't cause cancer. Uh, you know, you won't, like, your asthma won't act up from not having sex. Uh, no one has an allergy to a lack of intercourse. Uh... It's optional. Now, there's a very strong, uh, natural and God-given drive towards it, but it is optional. That applies equally to be people who are straight or people who are homosexual, right? 
That's not an excuse uh, for the person who's homosexual to engage in homosexual activity. It's not an excuse for the person who's straight to engage in premarital or extramarital activity. God can give the grace to go without. And if God can help straight people be celibate, which is something the church has believed for centuries and held up, we've even called it a gift sometimes. The people are, have the gift of celibacy. If God can help straight people to be celibate, but we don't believe that, they, that God can help homosexual people to be celibate, then whoever believes that, whatever side of the debate of homosexuality they land on, really is teaching that homosexuality is a special level of perversion. or a, You know what I mean? It's like, oh, no, no, it's, you gotta. Like, there's just a drive and you can't not. And you know, God himself could help you to restrain yourself from that. If that's true, then this is a special level of perversion. But I don't think it is. I think God can help you to be celibate, whether you're straight or whether you're gay. And I think that's relevant for the majority of the people in this room, whether you're straight or gay. Most of you ain't married, so most of you need to mind your business. (laughs) Sex is not identity. In a sex-obsessed culture, sex is identity and its value and its purpose and its accomplishment. But that is not the biblical understanding of sex. Sex is a gift. It has a context. Marriage between a man and a woman. It's wonderful and beautiful and a heck of a lot of fun. But it is uh, not who I am. It is not what gives me value or worth. It is not the foundational truth about me or the second or third or fourth. Like 576 somewhere up there is... Things are happy at home for the Thomases. Uh, <laughs> but, man, who I am as a child of Christ is first and foremost. Who I am as a, a husband and father is, is huge. Who I am as a friend and neighbor is huge. Who I am as a servant of Christ is huge. Who I am as someone who works for justice is huge. Who and how many and when I sleep with people whether I'm following God's way in that or off doing my own thing. It's not, it's not who you are. You are not who you sleep with. You're who God has called you to be. In the kingdom, Jesus shapes our identity. Jesus shapes our value. Jesus shapes our purpose. So if, uh, if I am my sexuality, then celibacy is a completely ridiculous notion. But if I am who Jesus has called me to be, then celibacy is uh, an important but side issue to who I really am. If I am who I have sex with and I'm not having sex with people, then I have no identity. If I am who Jesus says I am, then I can never ever have sex ever and still have my full identity in Christ. Uh, One of the other uh, things you'll encounter on this subject uh, of, of is homosexuality a choice? How do people end up gay? Uh, However you want to word that. Uh, People say, I was born this way. I was born this way. Uh, And I think there is an extent to which, frankly, that is true. But I was born this way is not the same as this is how God made me. See, we believe in a fallen world. So we're all born jacked up. Like how you came out of your mom is wrong. It's messed up. Some of you have a hard time wrapping your head around that because you don't have kids. 
But seriously, I said to Kelly like two days ago, nothing, nothing reinforces my faith in Adamic depravity like my children. Uh, I love them. They're good kids. But I, they know how to be bad in ways I never taught them. I never sat down and said, here's how you tell a good lie. But they do it. I never sat down and said, here's how you, uh, you know, drive your mother to tears. But they figure it out. I never say, here's, here's what it really looks like to be a deeply self-centered person. But they figure it out. We're all born messed up. And we shouldn't be weirded out when somebody's version of messed up is different than our mess, or mess uh, our uh, kind of messed up. When someone else's brokenness is different than my brokenness, it's all brokenness and we were all born broken. And so that's not a valid argument. I think some people are born thieves. I think some people are born liars. I think most people are born selfish because that's my issue, right? And I, I think it's not that big a deal because we all, you know. <laughs> with a predisposition towards that, with some uh, weakness in us. And again, I don't mean weakness like you're a horrible, terrible, weak person. I just mean, uh, end, we're all broken. We all have weak points. And so the idea that I was born this way I think is actually probably pretty true. And if someone, if that's the argument they bring up, that's a great chance to share the gospel. Go, I think you're right. Let me tell you how I was born. Let me tell you about the, the, the sins that have been an issue for me. And then let me tell you about how I found grace and forgiveness. And because we're Wesleyans, let me fa- tell you how I found the power of God to live the life he's called me to live. We're all born sinful. So that if that's the particular sin that someone is born with a predisposition towards, that doesn't like shake our theology. It reinforces it. None of us are born the way God wants us to be. That's why he saves us. Can a homosexual orientation be changed? Uh, I would certainly say not by uh, you know, just some sort of rigorous system of counseling. I don't think you can talk people into wholeness of any sort, including sexual wholeness. Not by cajoling or threatening or behavior modification. But God, in his unlimited power can supernaturally touch someone and set them free from anything, heal them of anything, restore them from anything. But that's categorically true of everything. So the more helpful question is, does God change homosexual orientation? That's where the rubber meets. God Can, can God make purple cows? Yeah, he can make thousands of them. But if you look around here, he hasn't. So what God does do is the more valid question. What God can do, the answer is always anything, right? That's the first of the omnis, right? Uh, Let's look at some other areas that I think will be helpful for us in processing the answer to this question. The first one that comes to my mind is the answer of physical healing. Can God heal? Yes. Does God raise the dead? Yes. Does God cure cancer? Yes. Does God regrow amputated limbs? Yes. Does God uh, free bodies entirely of diseases that have been incredibly severe and have racked them for years? Yes. Does he do that? Yes. Does he always do that? No. So the answer to God, does God heal, is sometimes... That's the honest answer to does God heal? Sometimes. Can God heal? The answer is always yes. Does God heal? The honest answer is sometimes. 
Sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. And a lot of times, frankly to us, it doesn't make much sense which he picks. It's not like he really heals the good people, and he doesn't heal the bad people. He really heals, heals the people with strong faith, but he doesn't heal the people who don't. He heals the people who believe in healing, but he doesn't heal the people who don't. No, I don't, I don't, I've never figured out a rhyme or reason to it. I think that's on purpose on God's part. Otherwise, we start to manipulate him, right? He just becomes a button we hit when we need a healing. Does God heal? Yes. Does he always? No. The answer is sometimes. Uh, another, uh, we, we've already touched on this issue of addiction uh, today, and I think that's another great example. Does God remove addiction? Can he? Yes. Does he? Yes. Does he always? No. There are people who have to stay engaged deeply in the recovery uh, process their entire life. I'm not saying that there can't be victory, you understand, but I'm saying there are people who struggle with a drug addiction who cannot see a needle for the rest of their life or it's going to send them right back. There are people who struggle with alcohol who, uh, you know, they can't be at a, a fancy restaurant and be with a friend who orders a gra- glass of wine or they're going to be in a ditch somewhere five hours later. That's not to say that they live uh, enslaved to alcohol their whole life, but it's to say that be- that area stays an area of weakness and temptation for them their whole life. And some people, they're like, yeah, I was like a crackhead. And now I like go into crack houses and pull people out and it never occurs to me I could use some of that stuff. God just set me free. I prayed a prayer, accepted him into my life. My chains fell off. My heart was free. Boom, never an issue again. Other people go, this has been something that I've had to journey with my whole life. And so I think the answer to the question, does God change homosexual orientation, uh, is sometimes. Sometimes. I think one solid, universal, kind of simplistic answer is, is silly and inaccurate. Which then leads to the question, well, if sometimes he does, when he does, great, problem solved. When he doesn't, can you be a homosexual? Can you, in terms of orientation, can you be a homosexual and follow Jesus? I think, again, if you're talking about the orientation, yes. If being prone to a specific temptation disqualifies you from following Jesus, we're all sunk. We're all sunk. If those who get tempted can't follow Jesus, not even Jesus can follow Jesus. If you're talking about the activity then I would say no. Can you be an alcoholic and follow Jesus? Yes. Can you be getting drunk all the time? No. But you can need to keep a lot of support in place and accountability in place and be very intentional in that journey? Sure. Sure you can. Can you be someone who struggles with pride and follow Jesus? Yeah. Sure you can. But you need to put disciplines and habits in place and accountabilities in place that cooperate with the Holy Spirit in bringing you victory over that. So if you're talking about orientation, I'd say, yeah. That's where this whole conversation about celibacy comes in. If you're talking about activity, no. In terms of just kind of a constant, yeah, it's okay. Constant rebellion shows a lack of faith. And if you're engaging in any sort of sin in a consistent way, that's an act of rebellion against God and shows a lack of true faith. Faith without works is dead, right? You show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's what James argued, right? He said, oh, no, no, it's all about faith. But faith does stuff. Right? If faith is a seed and a tree never sprouts up, there's something wrong with your seed. If faith in God is true and deep, it gives rise to, to obedience, it gives rise to victory, it gives rise to, again, freedom, not from temptation, but from sin. 
Constant rebellion shows a lack of lordship. Right? If you say do this and I constantly do the other thing, I cannot say you're the Lord of my life. If you say do this and I don't do this, I can't say I'll do whatever you want me to do. If you say, here's how I want you to live your life, and I say, I'm going to go live it a different way, I can't say you're my Lord. If you love me, you keep my commandments, Jesus said. No one can serve two masters, right? Like your your sexual orientation, your uh, pick, you know, pick a temptation, your own pride, your own idolatry, your own selfish ambition. You can't be like, I'm totally about Jesus you know, and that. No one can serve two masters. But again, this is true of any sin. So we don't need to treat this as a special issue when it comes to homosexuality. It's just, yeah, it's a sin. So apply what we know about sin in general to this sin specifically. So then we get to the more important question of how can you be a homosexual and follow Jesus? Again, we're speaking in terms of orientation now. How can you be someone uh, who, who struggles with that attraction? I am not qualified to speak to this issue because it's not something I've been through. Uh, and it would be arrogant for me to sit up here and say, here's how this looks, here's what you got to do. If this is an area of struggle for you, I would implore you to find someone who has faced this struggle and stayed faithful to Christ in it and go, what do I do? How do I live this out? That said, I think there's a lot we can learn from Paul's thorn in the flesh. Uh, we're at uh, you know, Bible college, so I'm just going to assume you know what I'm referring to. If you don't, uh, welcome to campus. Your first year is going to be great. Uh, <laughs> we're really glad you came. Um, Paul had this issue that he struggled with. We don't really know what it is. Some say it was uh, an eye issue. He couldn't see real good. I don't think it matters. If it did, they probably would have put it in. Uh, God's good like that makes sort of the pertinent details made it into scripture. He had some issue that he felt was significant enough that it at least impacted his ability to do ministry. I mean, it wasn't just a, you know, I don't like my ears, they stick out too much. It was something that, that he felt actually in some way held him back from his ability to serve God more fully. And he called out to God time and time again, take this away. Remove this from me. Get me out of this fight. And God could have, but he didn't. God instead said, no, 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 no. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness The simple truth is this, and again, this is true in life in general. Sometimes God makes it easy, and sometimes he lets it be difficult. God's goal for you is not that you will have an easy life. One of the hardest things that you'll have to wrap your head around as you follow Jesus is embracing a life that is harder and more difficult and more complicated and more exhausting and more stressful because you follow Jesus. It could be easier. It won't be better, but it could be easier if you chose not to follow him. And sometimes it's not just a question of the burden of doing all the good things. Paul talked about, you know, I'm burdened for all the churches. That's part of what made it hard for Paul. This is something God totally could have fixed and he didn't. 
something he totally could have set Paul free from, and he didn't. Because God in his sovereign wisdom believed it was better for Paul to suffer this. Somehow there was redemption in that. Somehow there was beauty in that. Somehow there was grace in that. And instead of going, problem solved, Paul, he said, you're going to suffer with it the rest of your life, but you are going to find my grace adequate for that suffering. You're going to struggle with this the rest of your life, but you're going to find my grace sufficient for that struggle. I think that's how God treats lots of issues in our life, particularly this issue of same-sex attraction. I think there are people for whom he snaps his fingers and it goes away and they get married to some hot chick and have a hundred babies and people go, wow, look what God can do. And then I think there are people for whom this means a life of celibacy. This means they may never experience married life. And I think it's probably really hard and really difficult, but I know on the authority of scripture that God's grace is sufficient that sometimes God makes it easier but sometimes he lets it be difficult if the point of life is sexual fulfillment then this makes no sense right but that's not the point of life God's not sitting up in heaven going how can I make sure everyone's like sexually fulfilled the point is God's glory and if the point is God's glory then this actually makes perfect sense because I would argue that being able to live a faithful life of celibacy no matter how difficult that is, as at least, is at least as amazing, is at least as much of a testimony to the power of God's grace at work in someone's life than is a life of monogamy. I would argue monogamy is easier than celibacy. I would argue that one man, one woman together for the rest of life is a wonderful, beautiful thing, but I would argue in a lot of ways it's easier than one person on their own in terms of marriage, obviously in Christian community, but on their own in terms of marriage, uh, trusting that the God who created us to have a sexual drive is at the same time giving the, the, the grace to keep that in check forever. I think that actually brings a lot of glory to God. And I think when we see someone in a church, a couple that's been married for 60 years, we should clap. And when we see someone who's been celibate for 60 years, we should like clap and cheer and blow streamers and throw parties and like ask them if they want to hang out in case they're lonely. Like, you know, that's just, that's huge. If the point is God's power working in our lives, then it makes perfect sense that sometimes this is what God would call people to. If the point is God's grace being made perfect in our weakness, then it makes perfect sense. Sometimes we find God's power that brings us out. And sometimes we find God's grace that brings us through. He is faithful always. Victory over sin is always uh, something I believe the believer can claim and stand over. But the freedom from certain temptations, sometimes I think they stick around. And God gives us the grace to walk through them. So here's my challenge for you. If you identify as homosexual... Know that God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. That doesn't disqualify you from anything in terms of the love and the grace of God. Know that if you don't have a relationship with God, you don't have to have this whole issue started, uh, sorted out in order to start that relationship with God. Right? Healthy churches have all kinds of Christians who are drunks and thieves and liars. Baby Christians, right? But I mean, that's how they come out. 
If you ever watched a delivery, babies come out messy. Right? And then you clean them up. And then eventually the little weird thing falls off. And then you're like, okay, this is like a human. But a couple of you don't know about umbilical cords. You're like, what is he talking about? I have no idea. Right? We shouldn't have people who have been stuck in that for a long time. But my goodness, right? If, if we had to have it all sorted out before Jesus accepted us, grace wouldn't be a thing. So know that if this is an area of, of not just struggle, but mess in your life, Jesus loves you, wants to start a relationship with you, offers you all kinds of grace. <coughs> know that the true followers of Jesus will love you and welcome you. Those who don't, just in your brain, scratch the brand off them. Right? They're a knockoff. I'm going to go with the authentic thing. Know if there's any way that we, uh, who are leaders in the church, can serve you. We want to. We want to. We don't want our, our, our biblically-based stand on this issue of sin to uh, ostracize you or separate you or push you away. We want this to give you hope that there's freedom and healing available in Christ. And sometimes, again, that freedom and healing will come in the form of an instantaneous, glorious, immediate transformation. And sometimes it will come in a non-stop flood of grace that is adequate for your struggle. But we want to be a part of that journey with you. If you have friends or family members who are homosexual, remember their incredible value to God. Build your relationship with them. Do not end it. Don't run away from them. Uh, how are we doing for time? We good? Um, sometimes sometimes in, in church, when we view uh, people who have issues of sin, whatever they are, we, uh, we have, we're, cho- we're faced with two models that we can choose from. We can choose to, be, uh, to see the church and Christian community and a life of holiness uh, as a, a getaway car, right? And that's how we all pile in who l- really love Jesus and we get out of here. We try to get away. And, and those of you who uh, grew up in holiness traditions like the Wesleyan Church may very well have been exposed to this mentality that holiness is the way by which we escape a sinful, fallen, broken world. Holiness is the way that we hunker down together in a community and try to remain unsullied by the unwashed masses of humanity. It's our getaway car. Let's all get in and get as far away from the world as possible. And I would challenge you to embrace an understanding of holiness that is not like a getaway car, but is like an ambulance. That holiness is a thing of health and healing and restoration and salvation. And our job, who've already experienced that, is to jump in the ambulance and drive to wherever the greatest brokenness is and pick people up. Holiness should draw us to people. It should make us run away. What God has done in my life should give me a deeper love for lost people rather than make me go, I need to avoid them or stay away from them. If you have friends or family members or, or people in ministries you're involved in that you, that you know struggle with this issue or any other sin issue, but this is such a hot one right now. If, if you have friends or family members or people you know who struggle with this, go to them. Be drawn to them. Build relationship with them. Build trust with them. Build community with them. They're going to need that so bad. Go to them. Don't run away from them. You don't get points for not having friends who are sinners. That's what the Pharisees thought. Right? 
Jesus was the one who's like, oh, sweet, hookers and tax collectors. What are you guys doing later? <laughs> Let's hang out, right? Be loving, be gentle, be full of grace, and in time, share truth. Pray for them. It's a difficult life. And if they decide to leave that lifestyle, it is going to be an incredibly difficult road for them. Pray for them. And for everyone, all of us here, I would challenge you to look at the plank in your own eye first. This is such an easy sin, particularly for those of us who are good church people, to kind of take as a notch in our belt, right? And to look at other people and to go, look at them struggling with that. I'm so glad that I'm above such horrid struggles. Now you can say, I'm so thankful that, for what God has done in my life. And now that, again, drives me to want to see him do that in their life. And so I want to go connect with them. But look at the plank in your own eye first. What are your sins, sexual or otherwise? What are your temptations, sexual or otherwise? And are they really any better in God's eyes? Lose more sleep, expend more energy, and get more worked up over addressing the sin in your life than the sin in somebody else's. Offer a gospel, offer grace, offer hope, offer the power of God. Offer transformation, but embrace it in your own life first, lest you be a hypocrite. Let's pray. Father, we want to ask for your grace. This is uh, such a uh, sensitive and complicated, but incredibly timely Uh, subject for us who do ministry in this culture. God, we want to be faithful to you above all. But we acknowledge that to be faithful to you requires us to serve and to love and to minister to others. That screaming Bible verses and running away is not faithfulness. That grace and truth is faithfulness. That hope and transformation and healing is faithfulness. That eating with what uh, a group that is, in a lot of ways, the tax collectors and prostitutes of our day, of our culture, particularly inside the church world, the ones that everyone would go, what are you doing with them? That's faithfulness. So God, help us to be faithful. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be people who experience your healing and your uh, power and your freedom in our own lives deeper and deeper every day. So that when we speak of that to other people, we, we speak on the authority of your word, but we also speak out of our own experience. God, I thank you for these students. Thank you for their surrender to you. Thank you for their willingness to do what you've called them to do. Thank you for giving them the courage to choose uh, the better but more difficult life. Thank you for their willingness to pour out their life in service to you and the building of your kingdom as opposed to the service of themselves and the building of their own little empire. 
God, I pray for all of them. You know what needs are on their heart right now. Uh, Some of them are uh, struggling with certain sin issues and they need your grace. Some of them, uh, there's financial provision that's got to come together and you know what that is. Some of them, there's uh, relational breakdown and, and stuff that's just messed up with the family back home and it's distracting them because they want to be home dealing with that but they got to be here studying and and uh god you just you know where everyone's at you know uh you know the weakness you know your grace is made perfect in weakness so we confess our weakness and open ourselves up to your grace Uh, and god where that's um where that's an issue Uh, that others can come around and help and support. Uh, God, make us sensitive to each other to know how we can better be community together for you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or even think. Glory to him in the church and through Jesus Christ for all generations. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, guys.